Coming up on Tech News Weekly, Micah Sargent and I talk with Zach Hall from 9to5Mac about a bunch of Apple hardware leaks. We talk with Dave Gershkorn from 1-0 about live streaming facial recognition on body cameras here in the U.S. Also, Jeffrey Fowler from The Washington Post talks about self-quarantining and uh, how it affects working from home. Plus, teaching on Twitch is an ideal and COVID-19 interactive dashboard as a vector for malware. Really great episode coming up next on Tech News Weekly. Tech News Weekly is brought to you from LastPass Studios. Stay in control when it comes to your company's access points and authentication. LastPass makes enterprise-level security simple. Check out lastpass.com slash twit to learn more. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. is Tech News Weekly, episode 124, recorded Thursday, March 12th, 2020. This episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online privacy with one click. For three extra months free with a one-year package, go to expressvpn.com slash TNW. And by IT Pro TV, get the most up-to-date IT training with IT Pro TV. Their video courses, virtual labs, and practice tests will give you everything you need to become a successful IT professional. Visit itpro.tv slash TNW for an additional 30% off for the lifetime of your active subscription. Use code TNW30 at checkout. And by LastPass, from access to authentication to passwords. LastPass manages every entry point to your business so you can mitigate risk while improving employee productivity. Visit lastpass.com slash twit to find out how they can help you. Hello and welcome to Tech News Weekly, the show where every week we talk to and about the people making and breaking the tech news. I am Micah Sargent. And I am Jason Howell. We're going to start off today's show talking about, you guessed it, iOS. Oh, was that the guess you had? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm super excited. So I was on the web the other day doing the hunt before uh, iOS today. Yeah. And I went to one of my favorite sites to go to when I'm looking for news for for iOS today. And it was 9to5Mac. Of course. And what did I see but every possible thing there was to learn about iOS 14, the next iPhones, iPads, etc. Dang. So I'm very excited to have Zach Hall here of 9to5Mac to talk to us all about it. Welcome, Zach. Hey, welcome. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. We you can welcome us, ha- too. It's yeah. cool. It's yeah. cool. Yeah. Welcome, uh, welcome we feel welcome office. in your presence as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think the most important thing that we should start out with is people will want to know, where does this news that you uh, are sharing, where does it come from? Because this is one of those situations where, you know, Apple is going to be holding a WWDC conference, whether it's an in-person conference or a remote conference, it doesn't matter. That That's when those announcements kind of happen. And yet we, or we have learned by learning from you, uh, learning that iOS 14 has all of this code and stuff in it. So talk to us about how this process works, how you've discovered all of this stuff. Sure. It's a little bit of stuff from the future and that it's iOS 14 and watchOS 7 and, and unreleased devices, but it's also from the past a little bit too, because now we're in mid-March and everything that we are looking at is based probably in around December. Um, and it also, something that something this all includes is something that's been reported from Mark Gurman at Bloomberg, which is the ability for Apple to turn features on and off 
as development, you know, the cycle goes on. Mm -hmm. So if something is not ready yet, they can turn it off. It's in the code maybe, or maybe they hide it from the code, but it, it won't be consumer facing. It won't be in the public or developer betas. Um, so it, it kind of puts a big disclaimer on everything that we're looking at, which is this is in development. That's the context, but that they could obviously flag anything and, and remove it before the, you know, iOS or iOS 14 and watch OS 7 if they wanted to, um, you know, which is based on last year's experience with some unfinished features being in the iOS 13 beta, then being pulled before the beta process ended and only returning in like iOS 13.23 and 4. So um, it, it's it's um, all subject to change, but it's all in development. Um, even if it, we don't know exactly when it will come out, the context though, though, is this is intended for iOS 14 this fall and watch OS 7. Gotcha. So let's talk hardware. We'll just go down the line. Uh, iPhone 9. This is a device that exists someplace between iPhone 8 and iPhone 10, 11, etc. What is this device and sort of what did you discover? And by you, it's a sort of the, the royal you. It's the mm -hmm. 9 to 5 Mac as a whole. What was discovered about uh, the iPhone 9? Yeah, we've got enough information that it would be nearly impossible for one person to write all of the coverage <laughs> for this. So um, we, we've, we're lucky and fortunate in that we've got a great team at 9to5Mac that's experienced and capable of, of you know, ciphering through information and, and, and you know, finding the story around it. For iPhone 9, I mean, the story there, you know, whatever they end up calling it, 9 or, you know, SC2 or anything else, um, it's it's really, it's, it's, the, it's to replace the, I guess it was the iPhone 5 replacement, 5S replacement, that was the SE. Mm -hmm. Only this time it will replace the iPhone 8 and 8 Plus in the lineup. And it, it seems like a pretty good deal where you've got the ability to pay for, you know, maybe around the same price or maybe even a little bit less than the iPhone 8. And then you get a, the chip of newer hardware. So it will age better. Um, and it's a better deal probably now than just buying the iPhone 8 and 8 Plus. Um, some things about it will have you know, it, it won't be as modern as an iPhone 11, of course, you know, it wouldn't be possible price wise. Um, but we do expect there to be some nice features that aren't in um, other iPhones, like uh, older iPhones, like the ability to have um, express transit where you can sort of wave your iPhone without having to unlock with Face ID. And um, and that makes, you know, using Apple Pay and in, in public places uh, like like the, you know, underground tunnel and you know those those are much easier to do and you don't have to unlock it with your face you just right. kind of wave it so it's great yeah and i i think too it can sometimes work where uh even if you are running very low on battery your battery runs out that information is still sort of held in the in the chip so that you can pay for your your transit which is nice yeah I just, that's right there's like an unseen amount of battery that, that is hold, held on for that purpose right i just wanted to throw in here real quick i was super confused because i was like iphone 9 wait a minute didn't that already come out because i'm android like i've been android for years sure. and years and years i completely forgot that apple skipped over the 9 mm -hmm. uh to go to the 10 and so it's kind of like they're going back in time. Yeah. And, and and they're like, they, eh, actually, let's have one there, too. They said nine <laughs> to the nine, and right. now they're doing it. So, Which yeah. is exactly what Windows did with Windows 8 to Windows yeah, 10. Right? Uh, <laughs> and exactly what Samsung did jumping to the S20, right? Like, it's, yeah, it's, it's in vogue right now to, to jump ahead. In so, fact, yeah, and I'm hesitant to say iPhone 9 for certain because, you know, for one, marketing names are very tightly secured yeah. more than 
code, which you think would be slightly secured. Um, but also <laughs> I, in the people that I do talk to that are Android users, they always, they'll often say nine, we're on 11. Like what is, what is it you're talking about? And so I think there are aspects about it that could be better than 10 and 10 S and have features from 11. So it could be some variant of 11 or it could be just be, you know, SE or something else. So we'll right. see. Oh right. golly. The iPhone 11 SE two pro <laughs> oh, max. Uh, max. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so <laughs> iPad pro there are, uh, there's certainly entry in the code for the iPad Pro, but one of the things that it may get is the most recent camera that uh, th this has kind of been a thing where iPads of, of yonder uh, have not <laughs> included the camera that you get, the camera array that you get on an iPhone. Are we looking at a camera that's going to be more in line with the next version of the iPhone as well? Yeah, possibly better. I mean, the, the big thing for iPad camera right now is, you know, there's an expectation that it will go from one to multiple cameras, um, matching some of the features of, of newer iPhones. There's also the idea of um, what's called like a time to flight uh, sensor. So the idea there is it works sort of like the front camera on the iPhone and the iPad Pro currently where you've got multiple sensors and so it can determine the depth behind you and, and take some things that way. So the idea there is that we'll probably come to the iPhone 12 this year. Uh, if the iPad Pro comes before that, it could come to the, the iPad before the iPhone, which is similar to what we may expect for 5G. Um, and that, you know, it's, it's kind of a, you know, leave it up to the imagination to figure out what you can do with that. Um, I saw one, one rumor was maybe you could, um, capture two images in one and change the focus in between, you know, if you take a picture like of a dog up close or a baby and it ends up being out of focus, maybe you could shift the focus because you've captured both the far away and the, and the up close, which is a feature that we've kind of won on the iPhone for several years now. There was that Leica camera that could do that. Mm -hmm. Um, and and maybe that'll be there. And then it's also one of those things where just the hardware, you know, might have AR kit implementations and we'll just have to see what we get and see what people do with it. Cool. Well, and here's the big one for you. Apple yeah. Watch, Apple Watch Series 6. Uh, what are we looking at? And let's not just talk hardware. Basically, everything with uh, the Series 6 with watchOS mm -hmm. 7. Uh, and maybe you can explain to me what the heck a tachymeter is, because I still don't <laughs> know how that works or what it does. It, I, I do love the Apple Watch. Um, 9 to 5 Mac Watch Time is my every other week Apple Watch podcast. Um, we just really, we're releasing an episode today with Casey Liss, so it's a great interview. Oh, fun. Um, for the watchOS and Apple Watch Series 6 stuff, um, at a high level, the hardware we expect to probably, it will be required for sleep tracking and Apple's been working on built-in sleep tracking since they bought Bedit a few years ago. Yeah. Um, they've even leaked their sleep app last year by accident. Um, there's a lot more code that we've discovered in previous cycles and even now that suggests, you know, how it will work with battery and everything and, and you know, be very featured. Um, the other thing is, is the ability for the series seven or series six probably to have a new sensor that allows you to take um to, to measure blood oxygen saturation and if you hit a high level of that or a lower level of that below 95 uh especially below 80 you can have heart problems or even brain problems and so the the key there is not only will be able to read that but give you an alert if it drops below a certain threshold so that you can be aware of what's going on and seek medical attention, which is very similar to heart rate alerts where you can measure your heart rate anytime, but you can also opt to receive an alert if it's too low or too high, mm -hmm. um, just out of the ordinary. So that'll be very cool. It's something that's been rumored since the first teardown of the first generation Apple Watch. Um, but it's never been turned on, and um, it, it may be that there was something lacking there for approval for existing hardware, and that new hardware will have whatever they needed before mm. to do that. And I think that'll be a pretty big deal. 
Um, and, and then the, the new, uh, infograph pro <laughs> watch face, we've got infograph and infograph modular so far since series four and five. And, um, the new thing seems to be infograph pro. And like you said, the tachometer or, or tachometer or however you say it, I had to learn. Um, I haven't quite figured it out yet. Yeah. Uh, will be this way, of it's from the analog watch world. And so it's like, a, it's around the dial and you've got, um, it's a way to measure like like speed and distance over a certain period of time. Um, so it's a very you know analog way of doing things, um, like a slide ruler, for example. But it's 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 sort of a stylistic thing from the analog watch world too, even if it's not super practical. Um, and my hope is that maybe with the infograph face, with this being on there, there'll be some other you know digital smarter way of using it. <laughs> so um, it, it won't just be an analog to analog parallel, but right. it'll have some some digital uh, enhancements, sort of like you know you've got, you've got the stopwatch and you can make it look analog, digital, hybrid a number of ways and, and do different things with with it being a smartwatch. So we hope this is the same case here. Yeah, that would be that would be nice. I I'm kind of excited not for myself um, because last I checked, they don't make Apple watches for dogs, but I think that the uh, <laughs> Apple watch for kids, uh, stuff is really interesting. So a parent can pair their kids, Apple watch, uh, to their phone and control things like school time. So between oh, a certain, uh, time of day, you know, the Apple watch can only do certain communications or only comp certain complications work. Uh, because I think the problem right now is I can remember when I was a kid, big nerd still am, but w was especially in school and I got a calculator watch and I remember being in class and some of my colleagues complaining that I had a calculator watch um, <laughs> because they were, you know, Unfair. oh, he's going to cheat on the test. Unfair. And the teacher, because I'm the teacher's parent, trusted me not to use it. <laughs> but with school time and something like that, then, you know, you can let your kids have these devices. And then if it became a problem with, uh, with the school's, you know, the, the principal or whatever, then you could say, well, look, these apps aren't available to the kids during oh, school. Okay. I'm using this as a means of communication to make sure that my kid is safe, that kind of thing. So I think that's a pretty cool feature. The um, timing so. on, on, on that feature alone is really interesting because we know that this information is based on development that was happening in December. Um, around Christmas last year <laughs> on our nine to five Mac happy hour podcast with my co-host Benjamin Mayo. Um, I was looking at getting my daughter who is now seven, she was six at the time an Apple watch because she goes and plays in the neighborhood and rides her bike. And mm -hmm. I want to know where she is and know, know for her that she can come home by sunset and know what sunset time is. And so being the Apple watch nerd that I am, you know, you got to have an iPhone for that and it right. can't be your parents' iPhone. It's got to be an iPhone with the kid's account on it. So what I did was I did buy an iPhone, but I didn't let her have it yet. I saved oh. it for Christmas and we gave her the the watch immediately. So, you know, we could know where she is with location sharing. And it was a deal too, where like the series three and 38 with cellular cost the amount of without cellular. Oh, nice. Um, so it was a really nice, nice thing. Um, but two things happen, you know, of course she, she, she didn't know she had to have an iPhone, but she was aware that she could ping it from the oh, control center. Well. <laughs> and so, you know, she, she suspected it. And then for Christmas, she received it, um, in a perfect world, like, like, you know, maybe without watch OS seven, I wouldn't even do the iPhone at all. And right. it would just be the watch yeah. because it's limited enough that she really can't get in trouble. Um, but, but even still at school, she was required to put it in her backpack. Oh, um, wow. so, so I'm still able to see like when she makes it to school and when she leaves, um, based on the Apple watch, but she can't wear it. And so, uh, I imagine that's a pretty big deal at a lot of schools, not just hers. And yeah. so this feature will be great for parents like me who, you know, 
bought an iPhone. <laughs> I, I just know it's too late, but in the future, um, like for my um, younger son, he's two, like when he gets of age uh-huh. and just buy him an Apple watch, maybe even a secondhand one that I've collected and not have to have an iPhone in the mix, which would be wonderful because you've got the Apple watch data for cellular plus the data for the phone. Um, and this is, you know, this can streamline that process a lot for parents. And I was openly requesting this feature on November and December. So it's really neat to see. Oh, it cool. was probably thought up by then and in progress. So. Sweet, nice. sweet. Well, Zach Hall, I wish we could continue to talk to you about all of the stuff. Tons uh, of I, stuff. Yeah, there's so was... much more. People should definitely mm-hmm. head Impressive. to 9to5mac.com to check it out. But if people want to follow you online, check out your podcast, that kind of thing, where do they do so? Sure. So, yeah, we've, we've got many more stories um, coming at, to the point where I had to think about what was published yet and what's going on. <laughs> oh, what's wow. Our, we could have gone a yeah. pink there. Hmm. Yeah, head is spinning there. Um, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Apollo Zach. I also write space news and history at spaceexplored.com. And, of course, the whole team writes at 95Mac with tons of news coming this summer. Awesome. Thank you so much, Zach Hall. Thank you, Zach. Cool. Great to have Thanks. you on. We'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm. Take care. All right, coming up, live facial recognition for the police in the U.S. Uh, uh, That's like literally next, not just in the show, but like (laughs) in in the future. But first, uh, this episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Most of us like to browse the internet without the rest of the world knowing what we're doing. We all know about incognito windows and browsers, of course. But did you know that even in incognito mode, your online activity can still be traced? It's not bulletproof. Even if you clear your browsing history, your internet service provider can see every single website that you've ever visited. That's why you should never go online without using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN makes sure your ISP can't see what sites you visit. It can't track you online. Instead, your internet connection is rerouted through ExpressVPN's secure servers. Each ExpressVPN server has an IP address that's shared among thousands of users. That means everything you do is anonymized and can't be traced back to you. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your data with the best-in-class encryption, so your information is always protected. Even when you happen to be on public Wi-Fi, which is a great place to use ExpressVPN, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe like a cafe or a hotel, definitely want to be protected there. Use the internet in confidence from your computer, your tablet, your smartphone. ExpressVPN has you covered on every single device. You simply tap a single button and you're protected. It's the easiest thing in the world. ExpressVPN is the fastest and most trusted VPN on the market. It's rated number one by TechRadar, Wired, The Verge, and so many others. I have ExpressVPN on my phone. I have it at home. Uh, I have it here at work. I mean, it's just, it's nice to be in the habit of using VPN. Many people will say, well, I've got nothing to hide. What does it matter? Being in the habit of this, whether you have anything to hide or not, like whether you truly believe that or not, it's just nice to know that you're not being tracked Mm -hmm. in the way that so many other people are because they don't use that extra security. So get in the habit of it. It won't slow you down. It's a fantastic tool. Protect your online activity today with the VPN that we trust to secure our privacy here at Twit. Uh, Visit our special link, expressvpn.com slash TNW, and you'll get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash TNW. ExpressVPN.com slash TNW is where you can go to learn more and we thank them for their support of Tech News Weekly. All right. Facial recognition. It's a topic that comes up on the show pretty pretty frequently. Yeah. It's an unprecedented tool for law enforcement. 
carries with it unmatched power in identifying criminals and even missing people and missing persons. It also has the potential to intrude on human rights, if we've, as we've talked about before, and overstep boundaries that are put in place by the Constitution. So implementing these systems needs to be done with a lot of foresight, a lot of extra understanding. Now, returning uh, to the show today is Dave Gershgorn from One Zero to talk about live facial recognition, not just facial recognition, but it's done in real time, live and with the police. Welcome back, Dave. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, it's good to see you again. So um, I had personally never heard of Wolfcom before. At least the name didn't ring a bell. But apparently they're the ones who are selling um, body cameras, like live facial recognition enabled body cameras to police departments around the country. Talk a little bit about how that has, has happened, how that's progressed. Yeah, of course. So Wolfcom is one of the smaller players in the body camera market. If you kind of look at the the market as it stands today, um, Axon, which used to be known as Taser, is really the biggest player. Um, and they sell, you know, uh, estimates are tens of thousands of body cameras um, a year uh, to law enforcement and, and uh, other organizations um, like security and such. Um, Wolfcom is one of kind of like this, the smaller companies that is dwarfed by Axon's size, um, but they still allegedly sell, you know, thousands and thousands of body cams a year, typically from the the contracts that I've seen in smaller quantities. So we're talking from two body cameras, they cost, you know, anywhere from 250 to $400 each. And then you need some, you know, a server to host all the footage and everything like that. Um, up to, I think the most I've seen is like 45 uh, body cameras, and that's for, for larger departments. So that's a good number, but it, it's, they are targeting kind of the people who don't want to uh, spend a, a ton of money, the, the smaller um, police departments and such like. So I would say that they are kind of a, a smaller retailer, but they are testing this technology now where um, you will have a camera on you and in the beta test, they're on their way to live facial recognition and they're marketing it as live facial recognition. But I did talk to a police officer who's about to um, take part in this test. And right now, what the way that it works is they take a picture with their body cam, which means like for theirs, they just kind of press a button in the middle of it. Um, and it connects to an Android app on their phone. And it has to be Android for right now. I'd imagine for, you know, permissions and everything like that. Um, and then it matches that face image against a watch list. So say they have mugshots of people that they, you know, want to stop on the street, suspects, missing persons, like you said, um, Pretty much, I, I still don't know where those watch lists come from, and that's something I'm working to figure out. But that's kind of the way it works now. The the officer, there are two officers that I know uh, trialing it, but there have six, been six downloads of the software, and I imagine that that's six police departments around the country. Um, so they take a picture, load it into the Android app, and then we'll, you know, wherever they are, are able to kind of match a person's face. I think when uh, when you read the headline and kind of like start diving in here, what what came to my mind is like this this vision of the future, you know, almost like Terminator vision where, you know, you've got this live scanning of the world that's around. It was like, oh, yeah, this person is a convicted felon, blah, 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 you know, following them around kind of in real time. But that that turns out that's not quite where we're at yet. One could see kind of going there eventually based on this technology being kind of live streamed in real time connected to the phone and stuff. Um what kind of an improvement is this over 
kind of the process that would have been in place prior to something like this? What would uh, police departments have to do in order to do this? Would it require something more expansive, more of an effort? Yeah. So I think what the situation that you described is like kind of shockingly close. It's, it's very similar to to what even Wolfcom, uh, their CTO, I believe, um, had showed this video of, you know, live body cam footage being streamed back to the uh, to the, you know, police department uh, command center and there being someone there who could click on all the live feeds and see the facial recognition work in real time, see the person recognition, um, you know, and then you see where the officer is on a map. And it's this kind of like really uh, dystopian kind of software um, that is, I mean, you can see it being pro proactive and uh, a a boon for police officers, but I think right now what we're kind of forced to ask is this societal question where, yes, maybe this might help you know, uh, capture a small percentage of criminals that would have otherwise been not caught. Um, but is this okay at the ex- at the expense of our privacy? Mm-hmm. The way to answer your question, the way that it wor- would work now is that there is um, video footage from a scene of a crime, say maybe from a CCTV or maybe from a, um, you know, someone even just taking a picture of it happening. Um, that gets sent to the police department. The police department plugs it, uh, a still it, frame from that video into their facial recognition algorithm and then they are returned a bunch of matches based on the mugshot database that they have of um, people who have been previously um, uh, booked or and taken and they have their mugshot so it's a lot more of a investigative tool right now versus what would be considered a surveillance tool in the the uh, live facial recognition space. Mm, okay. And one of the big questions that comes up around facial recognition right now is, you know, the amount of false positives, mm-hmm. how often do you get it right versus wrong? Because I mean, especially if you're talking about police officers standing there with someone that is identified as like uh, a murderer on the run, let's say, and that actually isn't a murderer on the run. It's been misidentified. That has real world like major impacts and consequences. Um, do you know anything about kind of how how good this technology is are they are they opening up about that at all no they we don't know anything which is kind of i i sent them more than a dozen emails um i reached out uh, specifically to the email addresses but i saw in a public records request that they have no obligation to answer the press's questions um they told that to a police department so i i'm not incredibly optimistic um, that that we're going to get more information voluntarily. So um, that's why I keep doing this. I mean, I think that it's really important to know what their accuracy is. Um, And it's, you know, when you're talking about accuracy at any kind of scale, it's really important to recognize that 99% accuracy, 90% accuracy sounds really good. But when you're viewing hundreds or thousands of people, um, that means a lot of people are slipping through the cracks. Like you said, either false negatives or people who have been, uh, who are wrongfully identified as a person who of interest. Yeah. And that's not just a little like that doesn't have just a small consequence tied to it. That could be days, weeks, who knows how long of this person being drugged through the ringer for something that they truly did not do. Yeah. In Argentina, um, sorry to interrupt. In in Argentina, uh, a story I wrote uh, last week as well, there was someone um, who was flagged by the uh, Buenos Aires live facial recognition that they have in the subway systems. And he was detained for six days 
um, wow. in a cell. His family didn't know what was going on. He was just commuting home. And um, it was one of these kind of like egregious things where it's like they couldn't justify why they had this person incarcerated. But the facial recognition said that he was the person. It turns out they had misentered this guy's name, it accidentally adding him to the database rather than someone that they actually suspected, you know, six years ago or something like that um, or three years ago. So it, it's one of those things where it's like even these tiny human mistakes that don't even have to do with facial recognition can have someone in prison um, wrongfully. So it's the, the impacts are extremely real. Yeah, no kidding. The computer said I did it. Blame the computer. Oh, God. Um, now, of course, the ACLU is just one um, one organization that's voicing opposition to this particular type of technology, let alone facial recognition as a whole. Um, they differentiate between body count uh, body cams as an accountability tool, which is kind of why they were created to begin with, um, and body cams as a surveillance tool which kind of seems the direction that's that's that it's headed right here. What, what can you tell us about kind of their position as far as that's concerned? Yeah, I mean, obviously I can't speak on behalf of the ACLU, but in the idea of a surveillance tool versus a uh, accountability tool, there are ways that facial recognition, not facial recognition, but, but, but artificial intelligence can be put into body cams that, makes sense. Um, I know that Axon, who has created an ethics board around uh, body cameras, and they have actually said that they won't put facial recognition into their uh, into their body cameras. Um, they use a face detection to, which is kind of a subset of facial recognition, um, to do automatic redaction. So you can actually release video to the public uh, quicker, which can help resolve disputes. It's, you know, generally a good thing. So artificial intelligence and body cameras um, is not an automatic, you know, red flag. But I think when you start having, when you start connecting it directly to police work, when you start trying to get real-time analytics, when you start trying to identify people, identify their gender, identify their age, identify their facial expression, um, and this kind of like real-time analytics aspect of it is when you start to really kind of run into uh, issues with, um, uh, with its, its use as a surveillance tool rather than an accountability tool. It should just be there observing, you know, as, uh, as a sort of a record of an interaction. I, I believe that that is the, the stance um, that for the technology as, a, as an accountability tool. Yeah, yeah. And you also wrote, you followed up with an article, um, I believe this was yesterday, uh, as far as systems like this, particularly I'm, I'm assuming like systems like body cam, facial recognition, live facial recognition, maybe less than body cam, but these systems actually implemented in other parts of the world. How does, how is it working in those, in those areas and how, how would that compare to kind of what we have to look forward to? Yeah. So I think that there are, um, in, in, the, the, the two big places that we know of right now is Surat, India, and there actually is life facial recognition all over India. Um, and it, there has been a lot of reporting on it. Um, and then also in Buenos Aires, like I mentioned, um, those are where I found two um, really big implementations of live facial recognition. And they're typically clustered around transportation systems like we have in the airports uh, in the US where you're kind of under constant surveillance. Uh, The way that that works is that there is facial recognition running at somewhere around 300 
cameras. Um, that seems to be kind of the number where the software maxes out. And then um, in Buenos Aires, it is a system where if the facial recognition gets a match, it will send a text pretty much to an officer um, with the picture of the person and where they are, like which camera detected them, I believe. And then um, the officers will have to go and, you know, detain this person. So I, I that's pretty much the way that it works um, with the static cameras that exist. I think the, the promise of police body cameras with this technology is that while a police officer is like physically next to a person, it says it like, you no, know, a little alarm goes off or however it will be signaled. And then, um, the police can kind of like take action more directly. So I think that's the promise of like facial recognition and body cameras versus the entire system, yeah. um, being rigged with wide facial recognition. Um, but the governments that have it now love it and privacy activists <laughs> hate it. So, I mean, that's like as far as we can we can tell right now. Yeah, right on. Well, Dave Gershkorn, thank you so much for hopping on today. We appreciate it. Um, of course, 10.medium.com is where people can find all of your awesome work there. That's More right. work around facial recognition and everything. You've written about this a lot lately. So uh, appreciate your time and appreciate your work. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me again. All right. Yeah, we'll see talk you, soon. you soon. Excellent. Well, up next, this novel coronavirus has people who aren't used to working from home doing just that. Yep. Jeffrey Fowler is here to talk about the experience. But first, this episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by IT Pro TV. As a busy working professional, it can be difficult to learn new skills or make a career change. Well, IT Pro TV has made learning IT and finishing IT certifications possible. Students are able to learn quickly and at their own pace when their time allows it. Right now, with the travel restrictions or the hesitation to attend group functions such as classroom environments, it's the perfect time to take your courses online with IT Pro TV. IT Pro TV offers binge-worthy learning for IT professionals and always keeps their content fresh as the IT world is constantly changing. It's in their core values to have content that is current, relevant, and up-to-date. You're going to get the latest exam objectives, new certifications, updated software releases, redesigned interfaces, and so much more. In fact, there are over 4,000 hours of IT training that they offer, and they're the official video training partner for CompTIA and have 12 CompTIA on-demand courses, including CompTIA A+, Network+, and Security Plus certs. And for those organizations out there who might be thinking of canceling an upcoming conference, IT Pro TV can help deliver and facilitate virtual conferences. That's right. They can take a conference online with general sessions and breakout sessions with speakers live in studio or remotely. Super cool. You can see how IT Pro TV can make it easy for you to grow your career. You just go to itpro.tv slash TNW and use the code TNW30 to receive 30% off. That's itpro.tv slash TNW and use the code TNW30 for an additional 30% off for the lifetime of your active subscription. IT Pro TV, build or expand your IT career and enjoy the journey. Thank you, IT Pro TV. All right. As the coronavirus continues to spread, more and more businesses are urging, if not requiring, employees to begin working from home in an effort to slow the spread of the disease. Jeffrey Fowler from the Washington Post has been working from home now for, what, eight, nine days now? I think it's nine now. He joins us now from home and strangely, at least unless I'm mistaken, not in his pajamas, which what? is what I would be if I was Skyping him from home. <laughs> 
Well, the trick is I've got my grown-up clothes up this uh, part, but you can't see below. True. Okay, True. all right, fair enough. That's that's comfort. And that's like, like a, that's like business in front. It's a mullet, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, the mullet of clothing. Yeah. <laughs> that's how it goes. So um unfortunately this is not your first rodeo when it when it comes to um kind of having to isolate yourself due to uh, like a self-quarantine talk a little bit about your prior experience being quarantined in hong kong yeah so back in 2003 i was a reporter based in hong kong and i had to cover the uh sars epidemic there and during that period um i was uh stuck inside my apartment for about three weeks um and uh, when uh, earlier in March, we started seeing some tech companies out here in California in particular and, and Washington State tell their employees to start working home f- from home again, I decided to kind of do an experiment to see how, if I followed them, how the experience of not only working from home, but pretty much just staying inside, self-quarantined, would be different today in 2020 versus back in 2003. Wow. Okay. And I have to imagine, I mean, to when you're talking about technology and the the world of the internet and the tools that we have now compared to then, I mean, big time changes. I do know that back then you ate a lot of peanut butter. Uh, do you have any peanut butter in your house right now? Uh, I'm slowly eating my way through all of the emergency supplies. <laughs> all right. Oh, all right. That has nothing to do with technology, but that jumped out at me. I was like, gosh, maybe I need to stock up on some peanut See, butter. I always have peanut butter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, but it's back then in 2003, like I had the internet in my yeah. apartment yeah. in Hong Kong, but the tools that we have now and the apps and the services, what we sometimes jokingly call permit tech. Yeah. There was nothing close to that back then. Most of my work and most of my life actually happened over email. Mm-hmm. And I weirdly kept all my emails from back then. So I was been, I've been rereading them and kind of reliving the trauma oh my of goodness. this experience. Oh, sure. uh, yeah. And, you know, they were just like thousands and thousands of emails, but there wasn't any of this kind of instant communication, you know, lots of information flying at you from all sorts of directions, stream anything you want over the internet, you know, get anything delivered to your house. None of that was around. So we are hearing more and more, um, and I mean, I feel like every day it's, it's you know it's rapidly increasing the amount of people who are saying, okay, my company has has said I'm working from home now. So this is a very real thing. People are are, are realizing, okay, we're going to have to do this. Um, surely they can learn a thing or two from reading your article and and of course having you here. How did you prepare your home prior to this? Like, were there any things that you needed to like collect to prepare for kind of moving your technology and your job? Are focused around technology, moving that into the home, or did you already have what you needed? Uh, I already had most of what I needed. And I think a lot of folks, because especially on this show, folks work or are around the tech industry. I think we've, a lot of us have integrated work into the technology in our homes mm-hmm. already. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is a privilege to have a job that uh, happens mostly behind a keyboard, right? right. Yes. But those of us who do have one, um, this, you know, work from home tech is already pretty common. I already had Slack on my personal iMac that I'm using right now, my work laptop on my phone, on uh, on my tablet, on my Apple Watch. So <laughs> technology was already kind of all around me. So at first, on the first day, it was like, oh, okay, this is sort of normal. And in fact, 43% of Americans work from home at least some already. And those numbers have shot up in recent years. So when you might think like, okay, this is a snow day or whatever, this is no big deal. Um, But things start to change a little bit as you do it longer, I think is what we're really learning. 
Okay, so I'm I'm curious to know these changes. I know you point out in the article um, that you have to be able to rely on your Wi-Fi or your internet that's that's feeding into the the home, and uh, you know, because if that goes away, what the heck are you going to do? I suppose you could tether to your phone and everything, but you actually had an internet outage. Like, how did you manage that based on what you needed to do for work? Uh, I did. It really shocked me. So I'm in San Francisco and uh, Comcast here. Uh, it was about my second or third day in, and it was like, oh, my God, the Internet just went out. What am I going to do? And I had all these you know, chats and video conferences and stuff set up to go. So, yeah, um, I was lucky I was able to tether to my phone. A lot of folks, though, are on like corporate plans, and they don't have the tethering component. Like, you could really be hosed. Yeah. And I've been actually remarkably surprised. So I've been talking and interviewing lots of other folks who are working from home, and Many of them have an outage experience, not just Comcast, but AT&T and others. Now, these companies all say, oh, you know, we're, we're you know, making sure our networks are up and running and good. The truth is, as more people do this, start using their network connections um, at times of day that they don't normally, um, they're going to be problems. I mean, these are shared resources in your neighborhood. And, and even if, like me, you pay extra to have extra fast speed, um, you're still sharing that connection with other people. And you're also reliant on the quality of your home Wi-Fi network. And it might have been like, eh, struggle with it sometimes because uh, whatever, I'm just streaming Netflix or whatnot. But it reaches a whole other level when you need it for work all day long and maybe your spouse or partner needs it and then maybe your kids are home from work and all of a sudden you're really taxing it in a way that um, that, that you're not ready for. Yeah. yeah. So I used to work from home. I did it for many uh, years. And one thing that over the course of time, you know, it starts out, like you said, it's kind of a, oh, this is nice. I, how, how great that you, you know, you get, you don't have to go into the office you can do, but there is an aspect of loneliness that starts to set in. And, uh, I, I can remember for me, it was like every time that little, um, bluebird came and perched on the bush outside, it's like, me up against the glass looking at the bluebird out the window uh, a little bit. I have dogs, so I was a little bit, you know, better off. But I'm curious, you know, having this experience and having it be sort of more fresh, but now you're getting into it, is that something that is settling in for you? And do you feel like the online means of communication sort of helped to mitigate that for you? Because at first it did for me, but after a while it was like, this is not the same thing. It's not as authentic. So I'm curious how you're feeling eight, nine days in. I totally agree. Um, Definitely feel lonely. It has taken me longer this time to get to that point because there are all these other kind of distractions, uh, both for human contact and just for entertainment and streaming and whatnot. Uh, I've seen a number of techies kind of try to experiment with different ways to stay in contact. Um, folks at Twitter and um, and at Facebook told me uh, that they're doing kind of virtual coffee time or lunches together just over video chat. Uh, I tried having my book club, which I was supposed to be hosting last night. We tried having it over Hangout instead, over video chat. Mm -hmm. That did not work as well as I might have hoped, uh, mostly because Google Hangouts was not uh, up up to the challenge. Uh, But yeah, these these technologies that help us stay connected with each other aren't necessarily um, designed for this particular kind of use. Mm -hmm. And I think we really have to sort of think about and figure out how can we actually connect when we're sort of mediated by this video camera, right? Like, how do we actually know where to look and really connect <laughs> yeah, with another yeah, human yeah. being? Because um, I think I think we're, we're not really very good at it yet. And frankly, a lot of this technology wasn't really built for that. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, and I, I would, I would even say like from our perspective and yours as well, cause you do a lot of stuff on video and streaming and everything like, like we live every single day here at work online. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of practice connecting mm -hmm. with people through, but, but even with all that practice, it's still just not the same. It's not the same, it's not yeah. the same as real human in-person contact. And yeah. it's really hard to fill that void, no matter how hard you try, no matter what the tools are. If there's not a real human in the room with you, that feels like a loss. Mm -hmm. Totally. And I've heard from a lot of folks who are like, I'm an expert at working from home and you're stupid or whatnot. You can't figure it out. It's fine. It's great. I love it. But remember, um, most people are not in that situation. Most people don't have that experience. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these tools that we've been given by our workplaces to help us stay connected when we're at home really aren't designed super well for, for, for these sort of long-term periods of separation. Yeah. Uh, one of the biggest problems I've seen is just that they're constantly on Slack, Outlook, you name it, constantly coming in with messages and doesn't care when your day begins and ends. Absolutely. It just keeps coming. Yeah. So I ended up sort of just working all the time, yep. oh, <laughs> like 12 boy. hours a day. Yeah. No, like who knows what day it is. I've literally lost count. Is it a weekend? I, I don't know. Yeah. So boundary the, setting is incredibly yeah. important. And that's something that, you know, took me a long time to learn because, a, you know, you'd go and you'd, you'd hang out with somebody and they'd be like, oh, you get to work from home. That's so nice. And uh, what hour, I don't know what hours I work. I, ha I worked whenever. And, uh, you know, you get the notifications. And if you make yourself available at all hours, yeah. then chances are that's going to be taken advantage of. And so I think that it is important if from from the top down, those yes. boundaries are not uh, respected, then you have to be the one to set those boundaries and, and make sure that people respect them. Because otherwise, yeah, you end up losing track of the days. Um, even still, I sometimes am like, yeah, what day is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's really important that you say from the top down too, right? Because as employees of an organization, like it's one thing to set a boundary and to say, hey, you know, at five o'clock today, my laptop's closed. My notifications from Slack are off. It's, it's one thing to have the, uh, the confidence uh, to say that as an employee mm -hmm. and trust that the people who you are working for will understand that. But to hear that from them, mm -hmm. to say, hey, we understand all of your time. You know, it, it's very easy for these lines to be blurred while everybody's working from home. So here's what we want to do. We want to implement a, a system or a scenario where at X time, you know, you are not expected. Or I, I don't know how that plays out because every job is different. Right. Their, their demands are different. But something coming from the top down really seems like pretty critical as far as that's concerned. Having said all that, how productive are you? How, are you more productive at home than you are when you go into work? I don't think I am. Okay. Uh, and, and the reason is I work in the kind of industry where, so I work in a newsroom, right? Yeah. Where a lot of the value in, in, in collaboration just happens randomly. You're overhearing somebody else is working on something or just had a really interesting conversation. Oh, somebody should do a story on that. Somebody should investigate that. Yeah. And you know, we try to have video conference meetings. We get together every morning and just chat. Um, but we're really missing out on a lot of that kind of um, interaction. So I feel like we sort of end up spending time sort of spinning our wheels a little bit more. And also just now that I'm just sitting here in front of this screen all day long, like looking at the headlines, looking at the information spilling out at yeah, me, it's just a lot more distractions. Yes. Right? Yeah. You're just like, oh, you're just sort of like trapped. Uh, and, and I just end up sitting in this chair all day long until my Apple watch starts pinging me saying like, are you dead? Like, <laughs> right. why, why have you not been moving? Uh, which I think is another real danger here, right? We're just yeah. not getting the same physical activity. Totally. And then 
And then our mood changes, our yes. bodies change. And it's like, what kind of sloth have I become? I think a lot of people are struggling with that. Yeah. Please no, keep no your doubt. curtains open. You know, if you've got room darkening shades and you're working from home, consider not using them for the time being because, yeah, you you will start to have the, the seasonal depression and things like that can set in at any time if you give uh, there these two ocular sensors essentially in, in the backs of our brains right behind our eyes and if you give them too much time to readjust to lack of light then it completely messes up your sleep schedule oh, your circadian yeah. rhythm gets thrown off so yeah it's important to let those light cycles work as they are meant to particularly whenever we're staring at these blue screens of, of, all the time. of death all the time yeah blue screens of death um well Everyone should definitely check out your article. I love your work, Jeffrey. It's always so great to get you on the show. Thank you for taking time to uh, chat with us today. Hopefully it was a, uh, it was like a, a point of differentiation <laughs> yeah. for some of the other work that you're doing in your home. And I hope that you don't have to be working from your home uh, too much longer, though I am pretty certain that some of uh, the rest of us will be following in your footsteps yep. uh, sometime in the near term. So uh, thank you for uh, everything. We really appreciate it, Jeffrey. Thanks for having me and stay healthy, everyone. Absolutely. You too. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Up next, some video streaming platforms might actually be better for taking work online and some of them less so, particularly <laughs> for teachers. We're going to talk about that. But first, this episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by LastPass. Securing every access point in your business is critical. It's challenging for IT to improve security without impacting employee productivity. That's a big challenge. LastPass provides you with a balance of strong security that's also easy for your employees to use and manage. With LastPass, employees benefit from a solution that's easy to use while IT maintains control over every login. LastPass offers multiple solutions for businesses. There's LastPass Identity, which unifies password management, single sign-on, and biometric multi-factor authentication into a single solution. Uh, that's adaptive authentication, which combines biometric and contextual intelligence to prove that a user's identity, that the user is who they say they are with a variety of flexible MFA options. You can eliminate passwords altogether by leveraging biometrics and integrations to streamline access to work applications so that you never have to type a password. Wouldn't that be nice? Secures every access point uh, from web applications to workstations and VPN. You can manage every access point in your business and it deploys instantly. LastPass Identity offers over 1,200 pre-integrated SSO applications so you can get users up and running quickly. You also have granular controls without all the, the hassle that usually comes with granular controls. You can leverage more than 100 policies to manage users at the app, individual, group, or organizational level so you can customize access and authentication requirements. And LastPass goes above and beyond to ensure security for all of its users. It's at the core of its business. Your data is encrypted and decrypted at the device level. Your master password and keys used to decrypt and encrypt data, they're never sent to LastPass servers, and they're never accessible by LastPass. And as the gold standard, they engage uh, trusted, world-class third-party security firms to conduct routine audits and testing of their service and infrastructure Huge fan of LastPass, have all my passwords in there. I have a personal account and a business account, both of them synced up together. Uh, so it's the best of all worlds. 
I really don't have to think or concern myself with my password health anymore. LastPass really does it for me. So it's really, really nice. Increased security doesn't have to be complex. LastPass makes identity and access management simple for IT to manage and easy for employees to use. And you can start your journey today. If you haven't already checked out LastPass, you should do so. LastPass.com slash twit. And you can find out how they can help you. That's LastPass.com slash twit. All right, stories of the week time. Story of the week. It's time for stories of the week. We're doing stories of the week. Oh, yeah, let's do it. Somebody needs to actually do something with that because we've Take given that. you the vocals. Now, now it's time for you to create the drums, there's beats. the synth. I, I, I kind of picture I'd like, like a uh, some horns. Yeah, so a flauta. <laughs> a flauta, <laughs> indeed, yes. <laughs> uh, so we'll be waiting for that. Yeah. Thank you to whomever uh, takes takes the takes the takes challenge the cake takes uh, the yes. bait. I mean, we're all working from home now, so yeah, you've got you time. Got, you got the time. Uh, all right, let's talk. Um, this I, f- <laughs> I found really interesting. There is a New York University professor uh, who there's a game center at New York University. You teach who teaches games. Uh, Robert Yang was teaching a class, and as part of that, decided to show students that. Teaching a class on Twitch was a really bad idea and sort of was talking about the experience of doing so and what's bad about it, what's good about it as part of the NYU Game Center's, you know, normal curriculum that involves uh, streaming online and, and some of the aspects of that. So uh, he's, he's teaching this class and at one point he says the number 69 um, which results in all of the, the students in the class and other people who had tuned in, random people saying, right. nice, 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 uh, <laughs> as you do. And it is Twitch after all. It so it's Twitch. not just isolated to just the students, right? Does Twitch have any, any kind of like, uh, like barrier you um, can, for certain people? Yeah, you can set up different barriers that are in place. But, okay. you know, part of this was to show uh, how this worked. And Strength in fact, platform, yeah, uh, if this. we scroll down, yeah, so there's a there's a screenshot showing what the class looks like. This is what the stream looks like. And so on the right side of the screen, it talks about what the class is, why it's happening, why it's a bad idea. And then on the left, talking about some articles, uh, which includes this really great piece Uh, from 2018 it's on the verge and it talks about the twitch streamers who spend years broadcasting to no one in the hopes that they finally do get uh people you know listening to them on the other side it's kind of a sad piece honestly interesting but it's a really good piece um it's yeah it's like it's 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 about anxiety and and wanting to connect and wanting to be heard yeah um but uh the there were about 584 folks and 78 people who were chatting but his class only has 18 students <laughs> so there were a lot of people who tuned in and the class for free yeah exactly they got a free <laughs> streaming class uh, but I, I just i thought this was interesting especially as we have different teachers out there uh using zoom is a big one right yeah, now uh, google hangouts is is <laughs> an option um i think skype maybe is also an option for Multi, some people. Yeah, multi-point. I don't yeah. know what the limit is on that. I, it really probably depends on like the size of your class. Yeah, right? exactly. That's that's kind of what I was thinking. Um, depending on if you've got a 500-person lecture hall or an 18-person class, that can make all the difference on what platform you use. I don't re- recommend FaceTime group chats, that's for sure. FaceTime group video. Uh, but 
with that going on, I thought this was interesting. And he was talking about, you know, depending on what platform you're using, there's something called context collapse. Mm. And so with this, because it, this is a, I'm presenting to a group of people and the only way they can interact with me is via chat. They don't have video as well. There's context collapse. We don't quite have that same feeling of actually interacting and being a part of this class when all you can do is talk to the person on the screen. It's really, it's, it's more of a, again, a top-down approach yeah. versus something like Google Hangouts or, or um, I just forgot the name of it. Zoom. Zoom, thank you. Yeah. Uh, th where it is a conversation and the screen switches between different viewers. Uh, and then also just yesterday, I think it was, on Twitter, I saw this uh, excellent post from, and I'm trying to find it here, uh, it's from Rebecca Slatkin, who is um, is an iOS developer as well as uh, apparently a professor or a teacher. And I'm going to include the link there for you, John Ashley. Oh, that's not directly to the tweet, but um, I just want to read this tweet because I thought it was great. Uh, seasoned remote developer moonlighting as remote professor move. I heard one of my students say on our class Zoom meeting, I'm on mute. It's fine. Just tell me. And I scrambled as quickly as possible to mute them. Everyone gets one. <laughs> uh, so folks are not necessarily, you know, as adept with this technology, understand how it's working. Yeah. And something like that, where you think that you can have a conversation, you think that you're muted. Oh, man, that kind of scares yeah, me. Yeah, that, that is a hard one uh, to, to manage. Zoom allows up to... I just looked it up. 100 participants okay. by default in every meeting, up to 500 with a large meeting add-on. So oh. uh, that would work for a lot of classrooms. But there is a big education <clears throat> um, aspect to that, right? Like, yeah. do all the people connecting, do they understand the technology well enough to connect, first of all? To connect. I actually participated in a Zoom call for, for a group that I participate in um, uh, like a week and a half ago, and there were there was supposed to be 40 of us. And inevitably, there was, I would probably say, 15, 20% of, of the 40 people like could only listen. They couldn't talk for whatever reason. Maybe it was the device. Maybe they couldn't get their headphones working. Right. A couple of people couldn't connect at all. Like there's just, there's, there's always... all of this, all of these casualties along the way, you know, mm -hmm. just to get to, and then a, a bunch of people that were able to participate, but it's not as easy for everyone else as it may be for me to understand that when I look at my screen and I see a little, a little red microphone with a line through it, that that means that I'm muted yep, or whatever. Exactly. Uh, a lot of people don't like, they don't understand, like they haven't, played with this stuff enough to automatically assume those things. Yeah, so that's the thing that we can't a big assume. Challenge. And I think that sometimes mm -hmm. uh, folks do, and there are a lot of uh, teachers and stuff out there struggling to understand how to use this technology. And I've seen some great posts, uh, a friend of mine who's a uh, professor, and he was he shared the email that he sent to his students, and he was basically saying, look, there's so much to be stressed out about right now. I don't want this class to be something that stresses you out. Mm. And so they already do remote meetings, so it's pretty regular for them. But, you know, he's talking about deadlines are going to be incredibly flexible right now and things like that. And so I just think it's good to be aware, you know, uh, Jeffrey Fowler was saying that there were people who uh, have responded to his article saying that, well, he's just doesn't get it or isn't, you know, is, is stupid or whatever. We need to be really empathetic right now, yeah. and we really need to. This is the time to like lead with empathy, lead with with compassion, and yeah. understand that not everybody is as adept as 
some of us are, particularly those of you who are watching the show, I'm sure. sure. Uh, you're adept enough to subscribe to a podcast. And for some people, that's even, even that is, yeah. a, is a big challenge. So, step. Yeah, yeah, just being aware of that, I think, is good. And this article kind of talked about some of the struggles I think that uh, teachers are going through. So. I, I think what I appreciated about uh, about this instructor is that I, I think Twitch as a platform for this sort of thing was presented to him by a student. And he was like, I knew it was a horrible idea, but I thought, let's teach a lesson in how yeah. you know, and why it's a bad idea. And, uh, you know, so instead of being like, no, that'll never work, he used it as, as a learning tool. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I think that's that's smart. That's smart teaching. Yeah. And in fact, know? the last line, as for the students who originally suggested it, they changed their mind. <laughs> yeah. End of article. Yeah. Great stuff. Um, so where there is fear, there's opportunity, such as the case with a story I read by Brian Krebs, Krebs on security, about how cyber criminals are using the current attention to the coronavirus uh, to infect computers with malware that steals passwords. And I thought this was particularly interesting because I've been um, I've been monitoring a website, a uh, legitimate website by the Johns Hopkins. Uh, it's their COVID-19 map. If you go to coronavirus.jhu.edu slash map.html, you can see this map. And it's, re it's super interactive. It's live updates and everything. It's done really well. Mm-hmm. So I've been monitoring this. It tracks everything, infections, deaths worldwide, all that stuff. It's legitimate. Well, um, Krebs found posts or, or discovered posts in Russian cybersecurity forums that show a digital coronavirus infection kit, which uses the Hopkins map along with Java code malware. So basically... They're kind of exporting this map and giving people who pay anywhere from two hundred to seven hundred dollars, depending on if they have their own Java code signing uh, signed certificate. Um, they're giving them the ability to host a version of this same map, and it completely working, completely you know tied into the same data and updating in real time. That will load the map first and then load the paywall. So even if someone visits the site, they get the map really fast. They think they're getting what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. And then there's some sort of paywall uh, executed through JavaScript that can then steal passwords and do all sorts of other things that bad malware can do. Um, so I just think it's, it's, a, it's a good reminder of the fact that when stuff like this happens, there are always people out there who are looking to take advantage of it, especially when you're talking about fear, you're talking about panic. And people, you know, a lot of people don't have their right minds on them right now because it's a kind of a scary moment in time where we don't really know and, and we're trying to you yeah, know, protect ourselves and to try to. Yeah, yeah it sure. feels like what do I need to be doing right now? So um, even if you, you know, and I, I think it's also important because the legitimate version of this map is an incredibly useful tool. It's really well done. So it'd be easy to go to one of these other sites if and when they, ex you know, exist somewhere mm -hmm. and think that you're at the right place. So God, this know, is so, that's so upsetting. Yeah, it's, it's demoralizing. Um, but, you know, again, vigilance, um, open, you know, avoid opening attachments that are sent, uh, you know, attached to emails, yeah. even if it's coming from someone, you know, it, it if you get a random link that you, you see that you don't know where it leads to, don't, don't, tap on that link. Yeah. I would I would recommend from the bottom of my heart and soul uh, to you and to all of yours, and I, I think that this is something that you should share with folks. We, we were talking a little bit before the show. I think many, or not many of us, but a lot of us are the person in the family that uh, 
is sort of responsible for sharing information with the rest of the family. Right, and disseminating. Right now, I'm kind of the person yeah. where they, they sort of do checks on, does the, is this a real thing? Is this not a real thing? Should I be worried about this? Can we fact check this? And I'm happy to do that. I think that folks need to be aware that Facebook, which a lot of our family members use you know, daily, is not an ideal source for information and that many times those links that are shared there can end up being a dangerous uh, link that's that's spread and at the very least is one that shares information uh, that is untrue yeah factually unfounded yeah Mm -hmm. just just uh, there's a really popular post going around that talks about holding your breath as a test for whether you have uh, COVID-19 coronavirus disease 2019 and Fibrosis is not even one of the main um, effects of COVID-19. So there's no reason to do that. And then also holding your breath is not a good diagnostic test for whether you have fibrosis in the lungs anyway. So there's all of this stuff and it's just like, oh, well, uh, Taiwan scientists said this and Japanese scientists said that. And it's all just, it's not true. It's not true at all. And, oh, I saw this, uh, this whiteboard at my doctor's office. There's all this... nonsense and so just be very careful with those i don't know like it seems to me the more that a person shares a thing the more that this post has likes and things on that the more i'm suspicious of it and definitely want to check for where did this come from what are the links what are your sources um so unfortunately we have to be more vigilant than ever because there are people out there who are taking advantage in a situation where we should all be like i said leading with compassion instead yeah Amen. I don't know what else I can add to that. Too. It's, uh, I completely agree. Um, just, uh, yeah, double check yourself. Check yourself and uh, make sure that what you see and, and what, you, you know, what you're reading, make sure it makes sense. Yeah. A lot of times some of these things don't pass the sniff test, yeah. but, but, you know, it's yeah. easy to like At buy into blush, it. At first blush, you're like, oh, yeah. that, that makes, oh, yeah, yeah take a Absolutely. second. Um, well, Tech News Weekly publishes every Thursday at twit.tv slash TNW. Uh, that's where you can go to subscribe. We hope that you go there, subscribe to the show so that you get it automatically. You can get it in audio and video formats, and all that information is on the site, twit.tv slash TNW. You out there can be a part of the show by emailing us at TNW at twit.tv. Uh, if you've got some particular hoaxes that you want to share. I'm curious to see those. Uh, You can also follow us on social media. We are at twit on Twitter. We are at twit.tv on Instagram. We are at twit talk on TikTok. Uh, If you want to tweet at me or follow me on social media, I'm at Micah Sargent at pretty much all of the things. And later today, we're publishing an episode of Hands on iOS that is covering the home app. It's an introduction to the home app. I was confirming with John Ashley, who <laughs> covering is the, the editor, home app, editor of the show. Uh, yes. So check that out. And I'm going to be doing a whole series on the home app for iOS. Right on. Love it. Uh, and I'm at Jason Howell on Twitter. Uh, you can check out my other show, uh, which published this morning, Hands on Android, episode four. It's a comparison of Google's Find My Phone app uh, to Samsung's Find My Phone app. And uh, yeah, I think it turned out really well. Again, John, thank you for editing that. Yeah, thank uh, and thank you for TDing and editing this show, John. Thanks to Jeff for the words on the screen. Thanks to Mo, who's taking pictures. Yeah, Mo. We had all sorts of people in here. We had a big audience today. So we thank you. And we thank you for watching and listening. We'll see you next week on Tech News Weekly. Bye, everybody. Oh, Mo. <laughs>